Welcome to our first CPA virtual interview. My name is Liam Lawson-Jones and I'm a member of the CPA Next Gen Steering Committee and I'm an Assistant Planning Consultant at Gerald Eve and our Planning and Development team. Our guest today is the former Chief Planning Officer at the City of London Corporation, Annie Hampson, OBE, who needs little introduction. As a coincidence, I actually worked in the planning team at the city for a brief period in one of my first jobs in the industry uh, as, an, as an intern and then a planning officer, which was a great experience and a real pleasure to work with Annie and her team. Annie, we were just talking prior to the recording about your first break into planning, which is a career that you didn't necessarily plan on getting into, uh, especially when you consider the attitudes towards women entering the workforce more generally in the late 70s and particularly in the, the sector. And I think with your, your family background, it must have been a very a different environment and a, a big challenge for you to make that decision. A chance introduction to the head of planning at Camden acted as a catalyst and after gaining a degree in geography and then working part-time as you completed your postgraduate diploma in planning, the rest, as they say, is history. A career that spans almost four decades in many different local authorities. Um, I guess it would be you know, helpful to have a bit of um, background on that and if there are any specific moments that stick out to you within your career at those various different places. Um. I was, as I say, I started at Surrey County Council and like everybody, one has to cut one's teeth where one cuts one's teeth. And I spent a huge amount of time dealing with um, movable classrooms. I was working on council's own development and um, schools are expanding all over the place. So that was a, a big sort of a start, but one starts somewhere. And um, then I did a spell in um, policy planning and did a little project on extensions of houses in the green belt about how all sort of small properties were eventually becoming big properties which is quite an interesting sort of piece of work but I, but I did decide as a consequence of that that policy planning was very sort of long term and probably not something that I so much focused on so I um, didn't stay very long at Surrey County Council I then moved quite quickly to Islington which was a hugely useful experience which I did for about four years and like sort of many young planners, I think in those days, you know, it was given an enormous amount of experience at a very, very early stage. We dealt with some very, very big housing schemes. We dealt with um, sort of public inquiries. I remember doing a CPO inquiry quite early on. And so it was very, very useful experience. And also because Islington at that stage was quite an interesting place. It was going from old labour to new labour. So politically, it was also quite interesting. And also, I worked on a lot of listed buildings. The, um, a lot of the Georgian houses were either being sort of redone for single family houses or being converted. Um, so I certainly developed a love of Georgian buildings through that stage. Then I was very lucky in um, 1979 to be um, appointed as an area planning officer at um, the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea. So at 25 I was given already quite a lot of responsibility. My patch was Notting Hill down sort of through Earl's Court to Chelsea. So quite a vibrant and interesting part of the city. And I also at that stage had um, thereby a sort of small team to manage etc. And so, again, there were quite a lot of challenges. There was a lot of development, very articulate residents, um, a lot of interface between members and community groups, etc. So 
it was an interesting time and also already in fact Kensington High Street was changing you know the old department stores already were sort of being impacted by not being sort of really relevant anymore and then um, the standards moved in and that was one of the really interesting bits of developments to have worked on so so that was all sort of interesting time and then during the last um uh, towards the end of my stage at Kensington Shelves I became an appeals officer which was sort of doing appeals but also looking after development and um, although it was a very very tough 18 months or so it really was a very very useful learning curve and um, it put me through sort of cross-examination at a fairly early stage which I think it held me in good stead at the time I thought goodness it was quite tough but <laughs> I think it, it, it helped enormously I also they, they kind of also I got a scholarship for um, a general management sort of high levels of training course um, at Henley Management College and was allowed to go off on that for about 10 weeks um, on a sort of women's scholarship which in itself was quite motivating because a it was you know sort of related to women and women sort of going forward and also gave me quite a lot of sort of management experience and tools that was really helpful and they also I think in fact boosted my confidence an awful lot because they said you could go far which of course you would never sort of particularly think at various stages in your life that you could. But um, then the job at the city came up, which was effectively sort of head of um, development, head of um, conservation, sort of archaeology, enforcement, all the things that uh, to some degree you know, I, I went for. So I, I wasn't, I think, God, I can't really go for that job. And then a very kind colleague said, yes, of course you can. So, so I sort of did apply for it. Um, I had quite an interesting interview process, which people would now. I had um, three stages of interviews, the last of which was a full committee interview where I was asked a lot. I would say I had two boys. I was asked a lot about my childcare arrangements. Of course, but not now terribly correct, but um, it was certainly a good element of the time. But I, I was lucky enough to get it. And um, so in, in 1989, I started at, uh, in the city as head of development, um, working with um, Peter Reese, who is the planning officer, uh, and worked on in the city you know, for, for then you know, the next sort of 31 years, in fact, um, eventually in 2014, um, becoming um, the chief planning officer when Peter went on to um, um, professor at UCL when um, were part of a sort of bigger department of the built environment. And I, I was actually offered a chief planning officer's job elsewhere during that sort of time. At one stage, I did sort of think, you know, is it, should I move on? Um, but very kindly, the city sort of wooed me to stay. And also, I was pretty committed to uh, working in the city. And so that's really, um, in part, how I ended up sort of being at the city for really a very long time. That's an amazing uh, kind of career journey. Um, I have one follow-up question before we move on to the next one is, what is your best story from a, a site visit for any of the, the thousands of applications you must have dealt with over your career? <laughs> Interestingly enough, a really funny one, way back in, in Kensington and Chelsea, um, and as you probably know, I'm not the slightest person in the world, and I was about eight months pregnant, and we were climbing up on a roof, which was probably a bit of an odd thing to be doing, anyway and this chap in front of me um got on this ladder and the first two runs as he got up uh, the ladder sort of broke 
as he was going up. And I thought, really, is this a sensible thing to be doing? But you thought, no, I can't let womanhood behind. We're going to have to go up. So I went up on this roof and was climbing around on the top of a parapet in a property in Queensgate. And uh, thankfully, both Dave and myself survived to tell the tale. So that's one of the funniest ones I think I will never forget. Definitely. Um, I think you've touched on some of these points in uh, your kind of background about your career. But one question that I'd be quite interested to understand is uh, how do you think the industry's changed in your career? And do you think that as an industry, there's kind of enough being done to enable more women and people from different backgrounds to, to get into planning and the rest of the kind of real estate and property industry? Right to say that um, sort of planning has changed enormously sort of over those sort of 40 years. Um, I think absolutely no doubt that planning issues have become much more complex than they were, that the things that were sort of arguably material considerations were really much smaller than they were. And when you look back at some of the reports that, um, you know, one wrote over sort of, you know, 30, 40 years ago on big, big schemes. You know, they were sort of three or four pages, whereas now we'd be writing nearly 100 pages to 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 make sure that, you know, every every um, issue had been dealt with appropriately and, you know, it wouldn't be challengeable. So I think that, that is one of the sort of big issues that unquestionably has changed. I think probably, interestingly enough, I think there's an awful lot more of, of you. Um, you know, there were relatively few professional um, planners in the private sector um, to start with. So when one was first sort of dealing with um, sort of planning applications, one was much more dealing with either the client directly or the architect, whereas the sort of development of, of professional um, private sector planners really has grown enormously. Um, and also, in some ways, the sort of um, the, the other sort of bodies that go with that, like um, sort of professional sort of consultees, professional transport planners, professional sort of Windex. So I think you know the whole sort of um, tools around planning has, has changed. Um, I think also um, one of the things that again is, is very very different about planning is is arguably the tools that we do have available to us. Um, if nothing else, when I first started, you know, there were no computers, you know, we had telephones, we had files, um, you know, we moved things around, whereas and, um, you know, we had to measure sites with things like perimeters, and certainly a, a planner's tool was a compass set, you know, now none of us really have to sort of do any of that, and certainly scale rules were sort of attached to us. So you know, to that degree, it is extraordinary to the degree to which things have changed. But um, I think those are um, one of the obvious things that have changed. In terms of how one attracts um, women into the profession, um, when I very, very started, in fact, was that I, I was surrounded with very sort of few women. But in fact, certainly in the city, um, in the sort of planning team, in fact, it was you know, about 50% were women and men. So there was this very even balance. Um, and I think it, it, it is interesting. I think one of the things is to make very certain is that um, women see um, planning as a relevant career to them. And I think it's one of the things that has not done as much as it should is to promote um, planning. It really as an interesting career, you know, both to men and women. And if I can do nothing else in my retirement, it might be one of the things I, I might try and do. Because I, 
I mean, I certainly haven't had a bored day in the, my sort of 40 years of career. Um, and, I, you know, I know many people who do jobs that they simply can't say that and don't say that. Um, but I think, I mean, there are, of course, sort of practical things in terms of attracting women is sort of increased flexibility, um, increased um, working at home. And also, I think it's very important as it's always recognising that the skills of men and women are slight different. Um, I think inevitably people tend to promote on sort of out front sort of um, skills, whereas many women are, are rather more reticent. I don't know how we actually deal with that. So I think it's, re it's recognising that those skills and how, you know, a total team um, really can contribute. And I think, you know, certainly I've always really enjoyed both working as a very mixed men and women. Great, thanks for that. Um, I think we're going to move on to the the kind of next round of questions, which is sort of focused on how the city itself has changed since you joined in um, 1989. I mean, we've covered some of them based on the the industry changes, but I wanted to start with uh, what was your favourite place uh, in the city? That could be a building, that could be a, a square. Right. Well, I suppose. <laughs> Inevitably, because it is such an extraordinary building and because it dictates so much about planning in the city is, is inevitably St Paul's. Um, it is just an extraordinary building. Um, and also because of its setting, the impact on views, etc., it really does have a, an absolutely key role in, in planning in the city. So I think St Paul's would certainly be my probably building in terms of, of, of most liked, most sort of valued and what actually gave me a real drive to, to look after. But um, in terms of other buildings, I suppose the Gherkin has become very, very special to us all. Um, quite, we might come back to it as to actually dealing with it, just how sort of seminal and important it was. But, um, but I think that has become quite a thing. I think the other thing is, I, although much smaller in scale, um, getting the Royal Exchange open again was, for me, one of the really sort of important and key things. I sort of felt, OK, well, you know, a, a thing achieved. Because when I went to the city, it was actually a trading floor. There was no, no public access to it at all. And it was such a special building. Um, although I, I know it's slightly sort of elitist, but you can at least everybody can walk through it. You felt, you know, what an sort of important sort of event that was to access the building. Great, and I I know that you're a bit of a, a church buff when it comes to um, the square mile, and one of one of my um, research tasks that I helped with when I was at the city was helping uh, the historic environment team do an audit of all the churchyards. So I wondered whether or not you you had a favourite uh, churchyard within the square mile. Um, probably St Bartholomew's the Great. It is just such a sort of an iconic and an extraordinary building and for me so incredibly atmospheric and to some degree it's it's churchyard as well but but I suppose if you're absolutely focusing on a churchyard probably St Dunstan's in the east is 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 really I think an amazing sort of place and um as we all know the churchyards are some of the um green spaces and I, 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 um, I is of the city so they they are absolutely places and uh, still more work to be done on that project I believe um, but uh, yes I mean it, one of the things that you may be aware is I am chairman of the um, diocesan advisory committee so my work on on churches across London will continue and uh, 
So one thing that surprised me when I worked at the city was just how many churches and churchyards there actually are, you know, concealed ones, obvious ones. Um, so I would urge any listeners next time we're allowed back into the, to the square mile to keep an eye out for them because they are truly everywhere. Um, Annie, the next question that I wanted to ask you was, you've obviously worked on hundreds of different developments in the city over your, your time there. Do you have one particular one that strikes you as being particularly memorable? Uh, it's probably not, there's probably not one that's absolutely memorable, but there are some that are memorable for different reasons. I think um, that very early on when I came to the city, I was very involved in Paternoster, which um, had had quite a sort of history even before I got there. There had been a sort of modernist response to how one might replace the um, post-war developments, and that had created quite a sort of backlash, and various bodies, and Prince Charles and various others had become involved. And so when I came to the city, there were some very classical sort of schemes um, developing for the site. And then over the next couple of years, um, a scheme by Sir William Whitfield um, emerged into which there was a master plan and then a variety of buildings um, that were placed um, within it by different architects. Um, so the master plan sort of held such that the buildings, if and when they ever became redeveloped, could be redeveloped. And um, it, it was a, a very, very big scheme. It was nationally significant. People were really interested in it. And just for me also, it came as an extraordinary moment. I was writing the final bits of the report, literally as I was expecting my third child, daughter. <laughs> and uh, so, so for me, and it's very, very memorable. And there are people who probably will watch this po podcast who did that journey with me and, and others. And it was a long and interesting sort of negotiation about getting these buildings right, getting the spaces right. Um, we were very, very keen to bring Temple Bar back to the city, uh, which was achieved as part of that sort of scheme. So we had to secure an absolute spite for it. So I think that although it is now really quite a long time ago um, and, and there are things about the scheme that probably with the benefit of hindsight we all would learn but still it was an incredibly sort of important scheme and to some degree Merrill Lynch which was came a bit after which was just off of that site for me was a really good example of um, what I call planning fitting because there were scheduled ancient monuments on the site there were buildings that weren't listed there were buildings that were listed there was a need to deliver the largest ceiling floor in Europe there was um, an old post office sorting office which was listed not so exceptional so it was sort of knitted in all these things and trying to secure the benefits that we could um, whilst sort of achieving the retention of the buildings on Gate Street, um, delivering what Merrill Lynch during sort of public access to the Scheduled Monument, making Christchurch Grey Friars um, garden and spaces better and recreating um, the east end of the church as a part of the So that was that was exciting. It also did have one of the first sort of roof gardens, even though it wasn't a sort of public roof garden. They were sort of early scenes and not necessarily the most exceptional, but they generated quite a lot of things about them. That's great. Thanks. Um, I think, I guess now you're, once you have your kind of work on the chuller part of the way, you'll be having some time to relax while we're all um, stuck at home for the foreseeable future. Uh, what do you think you'll miss the most about working at the City of London? And what do you think you're most looking forward to about retiring? Interesting, as you say, it has been the most extraordinary sort of personal time to retire. 
Um, so some of the things that you might reasonably expect to do can't. But first, coming back, um, what I on this about the city, and um, I hope I'm not in any way sort of power mad, but one of the things that always gave me a buzz was at the end of the 10 o'clock news when they did the sort of local news, they put all sorts of images up of, of, of the city at, to, the, to run the sort of London section. They always gave me slightly a buzz to think, that sounds a bit sort of, I owned it, but you know, that was my patch, you know, that, that's London that I've had privilege after sort of thing. So, um, so that, that's, I mean, that is something I will definitely miss, I think, in a way. I am already still finding it quite difficult not to talk about, you know, we or I sort of thing about the system. That was one of them. I think the other thing is, as of course, you know, colleagues and friends and, um, you know, that, that, that has been socially important, but having sort of said that, you know, I hope I've uh, sort of left them, you know, all with all the skills that they have and a little bit of the knowledge that, you know, I've been able to impart to them. So, you know, obviously one won't ultimately hopefully lose them because one will still be in touch, but inevitably, and that's not only sort of colleagues in the department, but it's also, you know, the development industry. You know, again, there's been many, many people you know, that once negotiated schemes worked with, you know, over a very long period of time. I suppose I did quite enjoy um, negotiating with people, um, which I hope was never sort of confrontational, but you know, was always, you know, how can we make sure that it makes sense for a developer? And yet, how can we, for the public benefit, um, secure the best things that we can out of this, um, you know, for the, for the general well-being of, of both the city and the public? So I think that those are probably the things I'll sort of miss the most. Um, in some ways, what will I hopefully enjoy? I mean, it has been such an unusual time to be retiring into because so many of the things that A, one would want to do or B, one is it sort of affected to do when one retires um, are, are, are things that, um, you know, just are not available at, the, at this precise moment in time. So um, certainly one of the things I, I will enjoy, which I've certainly spoken to the odd person about, is not spend one's entire life running. I, I expect, like so many of us, one spent one's entire time watching the, the one's watch. I remember even, you know, particularly trying to catch trains and things in the morning. It was if we were walking the dog, please don't stop at this lamppost because we're going to miss a train. Or it's always, you know, something that had to be sort of rushed to sort of thing. So I think that's one thing. And I think inevitably, you know, when, I, when there is sort of the opportunity to do it, you know, travelling, seeing people, um, sort of reading, going to the theatre, going to do more sort of cultural sort of things. Um, I really enjoy walking and cycling and probably something, again, people wouldn't necessarily expect of me. I really like the sort of craft and uh, do quite a lot of things like tapestry and things, which I've always found actually very calming when life gets a bit of a challenge. As I said, I am this as the chairman of the Dowson Advisory Committee and I've always, while I was at work, had to sort of hold it at bay a bit, but I hope I might be able to do a little bit more, um, you know, give them more time than I have been able to. Um, everybody knows I'm absolutely fanatical about animals, so uh, again, you know, having more time to sort of do those sorts of things, I think again, I was saying to somebody, I'd probably be just as happy looking after hedgehogs as possibly looking at planning applications. <laughs> Time will tell, as you say. It's, it has just been a very odd time to be retiring. I must confess, I did get sent a very cute picture of your dog, Monty, so I'm sure that he'll be looking forward to, to spending more time with you as well. 
uh, I, I really like that that note on the BBC Sky, the London skyline that you made, because I think you've absolutely made an impact on that. Uh, and I think that's a perfect segue to move on to our, our next kind of part of these questions, which is about the future of the city. So uh, I think we, we've touched on it already, but I, I think it's definitely worth mentioning that as a as a whole, the industry, from from my perspective anyway, is everything is kind of continuing on as business as usual. Uh, and I think that that really shows the the industry and the membership's commitment to the success of central London. Um, we had originally planned to ask this question, you know, kind of as you were handing over the reins, what's next for the city over the next uh, 5, 10, 20 years? So we, we reworded that and the, to, to look at uh, where do you think the city's heading in the next five weeks? five years and maybe 50 years. As you say, I mean, it has been extraordinarily encouraging and always goes back to one of your earlier questions. You know, we simply couldn't have done this 10, 50, 20 years ago. Um, so the degree to which in some ways the industry has kept going, how meetings are carrying on, you know, how there appears to be a sort of commitment um, to development, facilitating development to get things approved, it, 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 as you say, very ongoing and very, very encouraging. Um, and I think you know, both, um, you know, both the industry um, and, and the local authorities are doing everything they can to try and make that, that situation work. Before I was saying, and I know ongoing, facilitate um, some public things, um, going, making decisions and running sort of pre-app meetings. So I think those sorts of terms um, you know, are responding enormously to um, the present situation. But if your question is also around that will that have an impact on the future world? I think all of us have to say, yes, it will. And to what degree and how, probably still speculation for all of us. But my thoughts would be that um, some way, um, probably quite a good place to respond. Um, I think there will be um, a continuation of diversity of, of occupiers of the city, um, I think there probably will be an increased focus on well-being. And I think some of the implications this in terms of, you know, is it possible for people to work at home more? Is it possible um, that you know, arguably the rush hour sort of syndrome might be more challenged? Because um, I think one of the things that um, this has um, brought to light. There are consequences of gentrification in London, but you know, those most advantaged and those most sort of impacted by public open space, etc., are those you know, who are where we have got very, very considerable amounts of sort of flat living and, and high densities. Um, so I, I will be a time for us as an industry to think, are all the things that we're doing um, a great uh, of sense? Um, but I think people, people's desire and willingness and wish to communicate, I think is still enormous. So I think um, you know, whilst I think we can carry on temporarily, like it, I think the long-term consequence of, of Offices having a function for the change of ideas, etc., um, as opposed to the early basic work. Um, I think definitely, I think something that will come out of this. Definitely would agree with that. I think the nature of what offices are and what they have been is something that's definitely going to change. But I think despite the uh, the remote working that's been going on, I do think that a great deal of us miss the the social aspects of being in an office and um, you know the. The life of central London. I, I'm missing the hustle and bustle a bit at the moment. So the next question that I wanted to ask was 
sort of a follow-up to the previous is what do you think the the biggest challenges are that face the city uh, in its built form and how we adapt to that in terms of sort of sustainability, diversification, the move to a seven-day-a-week economy? Um, what are your thoughts on that? I think, I think there is no doubt that sustainability is going to become a, a much bigger sort of challenge and how um, we all respond to that um, is, is going to be, to be very key. And um, I think the new local plan and London plan is taking us a long way down that direction. And I think as part of some ways, the last few weeks going to really make people think about some of the things that you know have happened. And I think sort of long term business travel, etc. People may begin to realise that some of those meetings can in fact happen virtually in the way that they have. They're just going back to a point that you made. I think this buzziness of an office and the interaction and the thought really something I think that we're all missing isn't it is something you can make it work but it is quite slow and um, I don't know you had to work much more on a screen than I have over the last um, couple of weeks very very tiring and one of the things that people keep sort of reporting is just how tiring it is so that sort of lack of interface so I think offices are absolutely going to be new one of the things that I think you know, again was happening in the city the diversity of occupiers and that again is, is something I think that um, will, will sort of carry on um, into the, the, the future of the city and it is a, a hugely beneficial aspect of, of the city. So I think um, sustainability, I think it's incredibly important that the city stays relevant, um, that it, it unquestionably has a role to play that we do create a total environment that's actually somewhere that people actually want to be and you know that is all part of the creating of a sort of good public realm um creating a sort of cultural base actually sort of in a way recognizing the balance between um the historic environment and and, and um city um we think it's something that valued because i think one of the things that i i mean you know, I didn't really know the city, and I think there are many people who live in London who don't know the city still, um, and don't sort of recognise it as actually being a sort of interesting place. So I think that is again all part of the sort of seven-day-a-week city so-called. Um, that um, just getting that across to people well, as an interesting place, um, which is, as you say, part of um, the historic environment. It's part of new environment and and just be aware to people that um, you know, how busy can be. So obviously these all present a, a number of challenges to, to the square mile and obviously the city is an internationally renowned place to, to invest. Um, it's a great place to live, it's a great place to work, it's a great place to visit. I think what in your opinion how can the area hold on to this strong reputation and build on it in the future? Um, I think there are two things, two or three things in, in that, and I think one of the things that is worth sort of saying is I do think um, the city, as um, the city corporation, has an important role to play in that. Um, I think it's incredibly important that it um, it maintains its good governance, its um, openness, and then this sort of balance between um, ability and yet. Um, responsiveness to um, to change because um, I think that has been incredibly important in safeguarding um, the city and I think again without being too controversial and it's something again that Gay and others have touched on is 
that the city needs to be resourced in order to do that um, and to be able to um, respond to, um, as you say, this very um, approach about, to, to the city, that people are still wanting to invest in the city and um, develop schemes, etc., um, which is hugely encouraging, but needs to be matched in a way with um, the ability to, to deliver on that. So I think that's incredibly important. I mean, in terms of the city in general, I think so much of that is really around arguably what has been happening is the ability to um, attract talent, make it a place that people want to be, to be a place where people actually recognise that it is somewhere that um, is a very sociable place. You know, many of the um, young workers in the city are, are young, they're from abroad, etc. So they very much create their social life around um, them and so that the city actually provide for those needs, I think it's incredible, um, as well as the sort of day-to-day shopping needs. I mean, shopping in the city is, is something that I think is going to be quite challenging, but it, I think it's slightly different to shopping elsewhere in that very much the city is around what people need on a day-to-day basis, so that will continue, um, even though you know, more of it may go online, but not to the same degree. And also, um, again, the diversity of occupiers and things that have been happening sort of within office spaces, et cetera, in terms of making the offices, as you were saying, you know, a sociable place, um, facilitating that sort of interface, recognising sort of well-being is, is, is key, again, to productivity, et cetera. So I think it's probably more of what's happening, isn't it? Definitely, I I think so. Um, so uh, we've had a couple of questions from some of the the CPA membership. Um, so someone Emily Laverick at Built ID has asked uh, what you think in terms of whether technology has made a positive impact on planning and how it could perhaps be better used in the future. It's an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, almost the last few weeks are a sort of a living testament to uh, the degree to which technology has involved us in change. I mean like everything else in life isn't it um they are the tools that enable us to be more effective i mean i must say things like city you know have proved to be enormously um some helpful tools in order to um, gauge the impact of development and um you know, certainly on sort of tall buildings you know a while ago we had to very much try and use our expert knowledge and judgment as to where arguably we might have an impact on something whereas now you really in the office and do that within an hour or two um so i I think it's right to say it's been very positive also all the work that the city and others have done around um sort of wind and climate impacts um again you know the tools to do that would simply not have been there so whilst everyone recognized that tall buildings resulted in in windy cities um, you know, the, the actual ability to, to measure that, test it, uh, and look at the solutions very early on in the development process rather than sort of make do later, um, you know, are, are, are things that have been enormously important. So I, I think we can really say that technology, you know, has and will impact more and more, whether, you know, artificial intelligence will enable in the future more sort of straightforward checking of straightforward planning applications, validity, validating and all those sorts of things. I'm sure it will. I, th- I think you know, we just have to anticipate it, it, it will um, change change planning hugely. But the only thing I'd still like us to sort of think is I don't know that you'll ever get on things like good design. 
know, a, a system or a technology that's going to final answers, um, but it's certainly going to give tools that will enable you to get there. But I still think we need a human vision in, in the process. Definitely agree with you there. Uh, I think the next question we've got is from Laura Wibley at Gardner and Theobald, um, and it's a two-part question. So the first one that she said is, uh, what was the most challenging planning decision you had to make in your career? And what would you, another decision, what would you say you're, you were proudest to approve? Uh, difficult one. I mean, most, <laughs> most challenging is probably sort of quite political. So um, I think some people listening to this may know one of the most challenging that I dealt with was a, a, a seeing place to residential properties in the city. Um, and it just raised a lot of issues because there were a lot of benefits from the city, there were a lot of the disadvantages from the city, and there was a huge amount of objection. Um, members themselves were sort of very um, tied over it. You know, some were very pro, some were not. Um, so, you know, it became very, very sort of pickle and tickle. Um, so I think that is. In terms of the time when I was the chief planning officer, it was probably the most challenging decision to make. Um, in terms of um, other sort of decisions, I suppose the Gherkin was probably one of the most challenging and exciting because um, for those who may not know, um, it, it really was the product of, um, unfortunately, a, a bomb, the IRA bomb in 92. So we spent quite a lot of time trying to... Um, rebuild and replace the um, old Baltic Exchange, the Grade 2 star listed building and really rather beautiful. So that then came the challenge of could one contemplate you know, a, 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 a building, a new building, and then secondly, what form should that new building have? And out of that did come um, the Gherkin. And it was after um, the, the NatWest Tower, Tower 42, um, one of the very next sort of building, uh, tall buildings, and one knew that in approving that scheme, it could set the path for um, effectively what has happened, you know, the development of the Eastern Cluster. So it of itself was a, was a, was a, a, a very interesting and sort of challenging, but one knew it was a very seminal decision. It's one of the very few things I made myself ill worrying about it, <laughs> because one really did recognise that this, this decision was truly key um, for for the city, and, and and that did prove to be the case. In fact, um, you know, everything in the eastern cluster that followed through has really probably followed through as a result of that scheme being approved. Thanks for that, Annie. I think definitely, you know, if it all started with the Gherkin, your impact on London skyline is uh, remarkable. So. Um, that that concludes our podcast, uh, the first of the CPA's kind, I believe. So um, thank you very much for your time, Annie, and uh, I, we wish you all the best in your retirement. Can I say uh, in response to that, so well, A, thank you very much. Um, hopefully there will be a time when we're all allowed out and we can sort of see each other again. Definitely. We need to we need to celebrate over a drink properly in the summer at some point. <laughs> and uh, to uh, sort of... Uh, Yes, so thank you in a way for the opportunity to, to talk to you a little bit about sort of planning and uh, to wish everybody ongoing success in, in everything that they do.